Today I'd like to talk about Hatsor and the conquest of the Canaanites. How many of you love biblical archaeology? Can I see hands? Quite a few. For the rest of you and my wife, just uh, nod your head and pretend that this is interesting to you for the next 20 or 30 minutes. this. Can I see the slides on the back? There we go. Thousands of years before the German war machine, Joshua and and his Israelite army had history's first military blitzkrieg against the Canaanite city-states of what is now located in northern Israel. When the Israelites, under the command of Joshua, entered the land of Canaan, they were met with a people known as the Canaanites. If you are curious of what a Canaanite looked like, then you might enjoy this next slide. Shown here is a tile depiction from the palace of Ramses III of Canaanite captives in Egypt. How many have wondered why Yahweh would have commanded the Israelites to completely annihilate these people, and so many others. The answer is in their perverseness. Yahweh did not want Israel to become like them. That was the problem. It's always, you ever think about it, it's always easier to go from good to bad or light to darkness. It's harder to go the other way. So Yahweh didn't want them to influence his people. Pagan sex worship and child sacrifice were widespread in Canaan. Archaeologists found jars throughout the land with the remains of children who were sacrificed to Baal. Haley's Bible handbook had this to say about what archaeology discovered at Gezer in the Canaanite temple to Baal and Ashtoreth. Under the debris in this high place, McAllister found great number of jars containing the remains of children who had been sacrificed to Baal. The whole area proved to be a cemetery for newborn babies. We have those today, too. They're called Planned Parenthood. Another horrible practice was that they called foundation sacrifices. When a house was built, a child would be sacrificed and its body built into the wall to bring good luck to the rest of the family. Many of these were found in Gezer. They have been found also at Megiddo, Jericho, and other places. He goes on to say, also, in this high place, under the rubbish, McAllister found enormous quantities of images and plaques of Ashtoreth with rudely exaggerated sexual images designed to foster sensual feelings. Haley continues, so Canaanites worshipped by immoral indulgence as a religious rite in the presence of their gods, and they, by murdering their firstborn children as a sacrifice to these same gods. In contrast, Yahweh tells us children are a gift. We're supposed to become fruitful and multiply. The firstborn had the, had the birthright. Yahweh commanded Israel to destroy all of the Canaanites and the other perverse peoples of the region so the Israelites would not be corrupted by their sick and inhumane practices. Exodus uh, chapter 23-28 explains how the process was supposed to work if the Israelites followed Yahweh's commands. It says there, And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. 
I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and they shall drive and thou, thou shalt drive them out before thee. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest thy make thee sin against thee. For if thou serve thy gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Four hundred years earlier, Yahweh told Abraham in Genesis fifteen eighteen. In the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Shown here is the borders of the land Yahweh promised to Abraham, a little bigger than the state of Israel that you might know today. Moses said of this land in Deuteronomy 9.5, Not for thy righteousness or for thy uprightness of heart dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh thy Elohim doth dry them out from before thee. And thou, and that he may perform the word which Yahweh swear unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you think about it, all these pagan peoples go back to Noah and his sons. Their fathers knew Yahweh, his statutes and his laws. But over time, they had rejected them and become perverted and perverted their, themselves. Yahweh was bringing out a people who could follow him and his laws. No different than what you see today. Yahweh has called many of you, all of us, out of a pagan religious system. But should we be prideful? Should we be puffed up because of that? Because we follow him? Should we look at ourselves as better? No, here's what Yahweh reiterates to Israel in the next verse. Understand, therefore, that Yahweh thy Elohim giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Yahweh gave this land to Israel because of the unrighteousness of the Canaanites and others. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Back to Joshua's conquest. The first Canaanite city to fall under Joshua's blitzkrieg was the city of Jericho. Joshua 6 chapter or uh, verse 20 chapter 6 verse 20 so the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him and they took the city it's interesting to note that in the archaeological site of Jericho the collapsed walls and ramparts that are still visible today you see, you can still be seeing the biblical narrative exactly what said happened. They found sections just right in the front by the uh, city walls of part of these houses that were in the, the wall itself that did not collapse. Everything else around there collapsed. And of course, we know that Rahab was helping the Israelite spies. And that part, she was in during the whole battle. The spies went in and pulled her out afterwards. So this whole section never collapsed, and we can still see that through archaeology. I wish I had a picture, but I don't. I actually have not been to Jericho yet. If I ever go back, I'll definitely go to Jericho. That's one of the few cities I've not been to. 
So after Jericho, Joshua moved on to other cities. When the smoke cleared, 31 kings and their cities all fell under Joshua. If you turn with me to Joshua chapter 12, we'll start in verse 7. These are the cities and their kings that fell. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir. Their lands Joshua gave as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their tribal divisions, the hill country, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountain slopes, the desert, and the Negev, the lands of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the king of Jericho, the king of Ai, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, the king of Gezir, the king of Debir, the king of Gedir, the king of Hormah, the king of Arad, the king of Libna, the king of Adulam, the king of Mekedah, the king of Bethel, the king of Tupuah, the king of Hafir, the king of Aphek, the king of Lasharan, the king of Madan, the king of Hatsor, the king of Shimron Meron, the king of Eshaph, the king of Tanakh, the king of Megiddo, the king of Kadesh, the king of Jokneam in Carmel, the king of Dor, the king of Goyim in Gilgal, the king of Terzah, 31 kings in all. Think about that. How many cities, how much destruction. Today I would like to give you a brief tour of one of those 31 cities and the most important city to the Canaanites. It's the ancient city of Tel Hetzor. And you can see this right here on the slide. We visited Tel Hetzor in 2016 and explored the site with Israeli archaeologist Yossi Stepansky, who has been a prominent archaeologist in northern Israel for decades. He even fought in the Yom Kippur War, and he's an Orthodox Jew. Some of his, his discoveries I saw personally um, in the Israel Museum. It's pretty interesting. He's a super nice guy. Loved talking to him and picking his brain. <laughs> Located just to the north of the Sea of Galilee, or what today is known as Lake Tiberias, is the greatest of all Canaanite cities. That's the city there you can see of Tel Hetzor. It also happens to be the largest archaeological site in Israel, I suppose, if you don't count Jerusalem. For those that don't know, a tell is simply layers of civilizations. So you have one civilization, they built buildings, and then that got destroyed. They never really moved things out. They just kind of built on top. They had another layer, another layer, another layer. Basically, you have a, uh, an artificial mound. So that's what a tell is. You might have heard of the name Tel Aviv, for instance. You've got, uh, you've got Jaffa right next to it, and that's where they get that name tell. It's like a, a mound As you arrive at the city today, you will walk through a large six-chamber gate. You can see that on the screen. This was built by King Solomon in the 10th century BCE when the Canaanites were defeated and the Israelites controlled and rebuilt the city. Both the cities of Tel Megiddo and Gezer, Gezer I should say, have similar gates. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Kings 9.15. And this is the reason of the levy which King Solomon raised for to build the house of Yahweh and his own house, and Milo and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hetzor and Megiddo and Gezer. I climbed to the top of this uh, Solomonic wall and took this picture of the three gate chambers, one on each side. In ancient times, the city gate was a popular gathering. It was kind of the hub of the city. 
these rooms behind the gates, you can see them there, had many uses. Kings would even judge at these gates. And tell Dan, a throne pedestal can be seen at the city gate. Here's Brother Russ King pretending to be a king for a day at Tel Dan. His water bottle there illustrates uh, where the wood beams would have fit in on each side. You can kind of imagine there are these wood beams going up on each side, and there was a canopy covering it. The king would sit right there, and he would judge at the city gates. They hate the one who reproves in the gate, the prophet Amos says regarding himself who afflict the righteousness, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. You can see that Amos 5.12. Proverbs 31.23 says, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Elders are gone from the gate, young men from their music in Lamentations 5.14. Esther 2.5-8 tells us that some of the Persian king's servants plotted at the city's uh, gate to murder the king. I kind of look at these gates as like an airport terminal for us today. People were coming in from various areas all over the place, all all these different locations. So before TV and radio, this is where they would get their news. This is where they would find out what's going on in these other areas. So it was a real popular place. Here's a picture of the entrance plaque at Hetzor provided by the Israel Antiquities Authority. This is an artist's rendering of what archaeology believed the Solomonic city gate looked like. As you can see, these gates were uh, more than just simple large doors, but buildings with room chambers. According to archaeologist Yagel Yadin, who was one of the first to excavate Hesor, this Canaanite city could have reached upwards of 25 to 30,000 people. The site today has only been excavated, excavated about 20% of its total estimated footprint of 200 acres. To put the size of the city in perspective, It was 11 times the size of Jerusalem, Gezer, and Lachish. Here's a picture I took of the water system. I didn't have anything going down in there, but you can see how big this is. Um, At the the bottom, uh, you have to walk all the way down. You can find uh, some of the springs that provided water for the city. You see this all over in in Megiddo and other places. Um, Of course, you know, you have the... uh, you have a, a mainspring in Jerusalem, but you see this in, in, uh, all over the land. So uh, Hatzor was an advanced city for sure uh, in its time. Hatzor is first mentioned in Joshua 11, verse 10. And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hetzor and smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hetzor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe, but he burnt Hetzor with fire. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. He burnt Hetzor with fire. And all the cities of these kings and all the kings of them did Joshua take and smote them with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded. But as for the cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them. Save, save Hetzor only, that did Joshua burn. <laughs> Shown here is the entrance to the temple complex. Um, found at the entrance were charred cedar supporting beams. You can kind of see in those black beams there. Now, those aren't the original, I'm sure. They're a recreation, but it shows you parts of what they found there. Um, 
this was I took in the uh, uh, Israel Museum. It's a um, a large basalt lion. They had two of these that kind of adorned both sides as you entered that uh, that complex. What is left of the temple today clearly shows signs of massive destruction as we just read in Joshua, and as you can see on the screen. Evidence of this destruction can be seen all through the ancient palace uh, or temple complex at Hetzor. Um, you can see the burnt, the dark burned basalt supporting walls here. See all the cracks in them? It's really hard to crack stone unless you have a massive amount of heat. Uh, I know one archaeologist said this was like the mother of all fires, I think is how he used the terminology. Uh, here's another shot of the bottom of what is called an orthostat. This supported this this orthostat supported a massive uh, roof stone slab above, and as you can see, this is severely cracked. Found near the orthostat in Hetzor in the temple's holy of holies is a standing stone. You, they had standing stones all over the place. They're kind of like signs, I guess you could say. They also used them in worship. Um, we know Joshua even erected a standing stone. It was a popular thing, but um, this one caught my eye when I was in the Israel Museum. This was right there at that temple complex that hit sore. It's the sun, sun disk. And do you see what's inside the sun disk? It's a cross. For those who may be watching who don't see an issue with Christianity's cross, I urge you to do some research of this ancient pagan symbol and its origins of sun worship. It's a closer uh, shot there. All right, there found among the temple ashes, archaeologist Amnon ben Tor of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem discovered a desecrated statue of what was believed to be the patron god of Hetzor. Its head and hands have been cut off, clear evidence of Joshua's cleansing of city idols here. I saw this at the Israel Museum. This also was found at Hitzor. It's the largest statue of the storm god ever found. It was broken and buried in a pit. It was believed to be in the Holy of Holies there at the temple complex in Hitzor. And you might notice on its back or front, I think it's back. Sometimes it's hard to tell on these things. You can see the sun disk again. I should say the sun cross. Another intriguing uh, find that they found at Hetzor is the, uh, the name of the king of Hetzor. It's first mentioned in Joshua chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hetzor, had heard those things that he sent to Joab, king of or Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashaph, making a pact, obviously, against Joshua. <clears throat> I'd like to actually read, if you go to Joshua chapter 10, I think that's where I'm at here. Uh, maybe it's not. Yeah, actually, it's Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes. Together with all their kings, he left no survivors. He totally destroyed 
all who breathed, just as Yahweh, thy Elohim of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and from the whole region of Goshen and Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign, because Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. So we can see um, the head of all these kingdoms was Hetzor, and, and Joshua completely annihilated it. In 1992, part of a cuneiform tablet you see on the screen was found, and it ad- addressed the name of the king of Hetzor. The royal fragment dates from the 18th century. The two clay tab- tablets were written in cuneiform and were found right there in that temple complex, and uh, it's believed, deciphered to be the name of uh, Jabin just like we see there in scripture. This was something that was interesting to me. It really doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, so to speak. But if you go through all of Israel, you see olive trees everywhere. I mean, you have the Mount of Olives, of course, in Jerusalem. And um, a lot of those trees would, could be just hundreds and hundreds of years old. But anyway, so you, uh, you see these uh, um, oil presses all over the land. I thought this was really interesting just because some of this they had to recreate because obviously like the beam wasn't going to last, but it's still in the same location. And uh, it kind of gives you an idea of how they pressed those olives and how the, the olive uh, oil then would come out around the sides and they usually had like a slit where the, as they're pressing it, the oil would kind of run down. Um, just kind of a cool thing that I saw there. This was uh, interesting. In front of that temple complex at Hetzor, they don't actually let you go down and take pictures, but uh, our archaeologist, Yossi, kind of took off with a few other people, and, and Russ King and I were just kind of standing right there. and We wanted to get some pictures, and Russ said, jump on in there. So I jumped in there. I started taking pictures of all these standing stones. It's kind of weird. You see this. It's like a cultic site. It even says cultic site on it. All these standing stones everywhere. Uh, here's another one, a, a, like a circular pattern. They probably did some sort of weird sacrifice or something there. But it was really a, a, an attest to the people of the area when you see this and how pagan they really were. Archaeology is bringing the Bible to life every day in the land of Israel. Amazing finds that prove the biblical narrative are all over the land, proving biblical characters like uh, Joshua, Moses, King David, and then that these people really existed. Places like Tel Hetzor, Tel Dan, Magdala, Megiddo are all etched in stone just waiting to uncover more secrets. I think I heard like only 20% of the land of Israel has been excavated. So who knows what we're going to find as time goes on. Um, it's, uh, it's intriguing to me when you can go and you can touch the very thing you read about in the Bible. And it's there. And it's... The, the, the signs of it, the fingerprints of the Bible are all over it. And uh, we really enjoyed our trip to Hetzor. There's uh, Yossi, our archaeologist. Uh, he filled in a lot of clues that I shared with you today, um, bridging that, that gap between uh, the, the biblical city of Hetzor and modern times and the figures and the faith that, uh, that we so love in Yahweh. So with that, I'd like to say shalom and Yahweh bless.